I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The long march through the institution. You ever heard that before? The long march through the institutions. What is that? Well, you should know a socialist said that in the year 1967. That's what they believe the origins of that are. But what was this socialist talking about? Well, here's the problem the communists faced here in America. The Soviet Union, remember, they wanted communism for the whole world. It was never supposed to be for Russia. It was supposed to be for everybody. Communism has to be for everyone for it to work. That's why we have globalists now. These are just communists by a different name. But anyway, it was supposed to be for everyone. Communism is an aggressive, destructive religion of death. That's really what it is. And it's death for everyone and everything. They, they have to kill everything in order to remake this world, which never ends up getting remade. And America was always going to be a problem. So the Soviet Union decided, well, hey, we're communists. Let's just tell America about communism. And they came over here and they tried to tell America about communism and they tried to sell it to the workers and this and that. But the problem was communism is never popular, but if it's ever going to gain a slight amount of popularity, it's always with a miserable society. You know, that's where you get somebody. They're down and out, miserable. They're always going to get somebody. But if you have a society that's wealthy and prosperous the way America is, Communism's never going to catch on, and the Soviets were so frustrated, they could not get it to catch on here. Why won't these Americans listen? Don't they understand how much better it will be if they just let us kill a couple million people? Like, that kind of thing. There, there really was a plan at one point in time, wrap your mind around this, to take Americans who wouldn't accept it and put them out in a camp 
and they thought they might have to kill 10 to 50 million of them. Hey, this is stuff they wrote down. Hey, these guys won't accept it. But they realized they couldn't do that. So what do you do then? Well, the communist, to his credit, understood very well that I don't want to use, I don't want to say a nation, because it applies actually to tiny tribes. From tiny tribes to big nations, what your society relies on are its institutions. Societies are simply guided by their institutions. You are guided. Now, I'm not talking about you specifically, but as a, as a whole, America is guided by the media. The media is a huge institution. Education system, that's a huge institution. The government is a huge institution. Religion, entertainment, different institutions are what hold up a society and guide the society. So the communists realized, hey, this thing isn't going to catch on. They're not accepting communism. They don't want it. So why don't we just take over the institutions and make them take it? Because once they take over the institutions which lead a society, they don't have to convince you. They don't have to convince me of anything. No, say this or you go to jail. Say this or you don't have a job. Believe this or you can't do this. You see what I mean? That's why they talked about the long march through America's institutions. And now, now that they have achieved leadership in all of our institutions, now that they own them, well, this is where their real work begins. And what is their real work for them? Remember this, always remember this about the communists, no matter how many times we talk about the communists and communism and American communism, remember, the solution to every problem, no matter what it is, is to kill people. That's, that's what communism is. If you're Stalin, took over the Soviet Union, life is good, you're the leader of this huge country, you rule it all, but there are some people who aren't happy with your rule. They wish it was someone else. They think you're too this. They think you're too that. Well, if you're Stalin and you have people like that, just go kill them all. Remember, communists are anti-humans. Solzhenitsyn called them the enemies of humanity for a reason. So they don't look at a human being as being a unique God-breathed soul. If a human being is a problem for you, well, just kill him and get him out of the way. So Stalin just killed a bunch of people. That takes a different form today. The climate change nutters. You know about these people. Well, if you actually listen to what they say, what do they say is the solution to all of these problems that they've made up? All the emissions, all the food problems, all the this. What's the solution? We need a lot less people. They're on record, on videotape, saying we should have a reduction in 90% of the Earth's population. That's like 5, 6 billion people, by the way. The communist sees a problem, and he looks around and sees who he has to kill to solve that problem. Well, now that they control our institutions, they're busy focusing on who they need to get rid of to get rid of all these pesky freedom lovers who are holding them back. Well, the media, they found the enemy. The biggest threat to Americans is not jihadists overseas. It's homegrown domestic terrorists inspired by white supremacists. The gravest terrorist threat to the homeland is domestic violent extremism. Domestic terrorism is our number one threat. What can we do to stop it? What we need is to take the laws we already have and apply them to white people. If we can go after international terrorists, why can't we do it at home? Today, we're mostly looking at our neighbors rather than 
a Osama bin Laden that's far off in Afghanistan. Bin Laden and co. didn't have supporters and sympathizers among the House Republican caucus. The Republican Party is basically a domestic terrorist cell at this point, and they should be treated as such. There are elements of the GOP that are starting to look like the jihadists. MAGA and the domestic terror threat is much more worrisome than any foreign threat. Al-Qaeda wasn't white, and white terrorists have a certain advantage, a certain, what's the word I'm looking for? Privilege. It is domestic white terror that is the greatest threat to our way of life. Right-wing domestic violent extremism is the single greatest threat facing this country. There is a serious right-wing domestic terrorism problem in this country. President Trump is gone, right? And the extremists are not. The Republican Party is the getaway driver for these domestic terrorists. What I would call MAGA terrorists. You're either with them or with us. Now, now they focus on their enemies. And look, it's, it, it goes way beyond that. The media, that's one sick institution. That's one of their main roles now. They're, one of their main roles is making sure all of America knows you're a domestic terrorist. But don't discount entertainment. I bring up entertainment a lot because for so long the right has dismissed it. No one cares what this actor says. No one cares what the pop star says. What are you talking about? Yes, they do. Millions of people care. Uh, whether they should or shouldn't isn't up to you or I. They do. Your kids, what your kids watch, what your kids hear, it will affect their kids' values. Your kids still watching Disney? Well, congratulations, the communist, he's at Disney, and he's at Disney for a purpose. Our leadership over there has been so welcoming to, like, my, like, not-at-all-secret gay agenda. All that, like, momentum that I felt, like, that sense of I don't have to be afraid to like let's have these two characters kiss let's in the background this are, like I was just wherever I could just basically adding queerness to like the, if you see anything queer in the show I'm proud of but like I, I just was like no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop oh but it's way more than entertainment you didn't think they were going to stop see this is a mistake the right always uh, always makes we always think that there's some boundary they're not going to cross. Yeah, but they'd never do this. They'd never come for this. It's a religion of destruction. They come for everything. You didn't think you didn't think your doctor's office was safe, did you? If you did, I want you to pay very close attention to this graduation ceremony from Columbia Medical School. I promise to self-reflect diligently to confront unconscious prejudices and to develop the skills, knowledge, and character necessary to engender an inclusive, equitable field of medicine. Let us bow our heads in recognition of the gravity of this oath. We swear to faithfully engage with these ideals and obligations for the ongoing betterment of medicine and humanity. It is now my honor to present the class of 2025. Please turn around. They're always going to come for everything. And the communist has always and will always have his eyes on your children. He's trying to get your children. He's not passive about it. He's not accidental about it. He's trying to get your children. These teachers today, you think, oh, it's a school teacher. You understand how many communist predators went into the profession just to get your children. In case you don't know, here's a little video. All right, we have to talk about this right-wing idea of parents' rights. 
It's literally just fascism. It looks like these homosexuals have set up a free library. Let's take a look. This little free library was built by hand by two extremely domestic lesbians. Alright Miko, so this question says, what do your students call you since you're non-binary? Miko's one of my students. What do you call me Miko? They them. That's my pronouns, but what do you call me as your teacher? Teacher Roby. So you know my pronouns are they them. You know that you go by, or I go by teacher Roby. What are your pronouns? She, her. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All that may have made you uncomfortable, but I am right. You know, let's focus on those teachers for a moment. Corey DeAngelis has been out there on the front lines making wins in education. We need to talk to him about the institution of education. Next. And then I talked to kids about the isolation they experienced in COVID, the disruption for the first time in modern history of this country. We all went to school. So I can get in the garden, you go to school. These kids' lives have been disrupted. They didn't get the education that they needed. They didn't see their friends. They didn't play ball. They didn't do theater. Okay? And then on top of that, they're sitting worrying about whether the planet is going to be here for them when they are older because of climate change. So they got all of these things on their minds. Joining me now, my buddy Corey DeAngelis, Senior Fellow, American Federation of Children. Corey's actually out there making things happen at the state level for education. All right, Corey, boy, I had no idea Bernie was so anti-lockdown. <laughs> That's inspiring. I guess I, I guess I don't remember it that way, but clearly I've just been hitting the head too much. I mean, look, we're seeing this from the left all over the place. They're just gaslighting on the issue. He's at a teachers union conference with the NEA and the American Federation of Teachers, the two largest national teachers unions. And it's like, dude, read the room. The people that are sitting there, they were the ones that lobbied to keep the schools closed as long as possible. You had the AFT and the NEA explicitly lobby the CDC to keep it to make it more difficult to reopen the schools in person. And these unions held children's education hostage to secure multiple multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the taxpayer, and it worked for them. They received over $190 billion in so-called COVID relief since March of 2020. But look, parents aren't dumb. They saw what happened over the past few years, and no amount of gaslighting is going to work on, on these parents who just want more of a say in their kids' education. And thankfully, the unions overplayed their hand, awakened a sleeping giant, and we're seeing a school choice revolution all across the country right now. Gosh, we are, and I love it. You know what, we'll get to that in a moment. I wanna, I wanna backtrack a little bit, Corey. I like to go in order because I'm dumb and I can't keep my thoughts in order. America's education system wasn't necessarily working the way it should have before COVID. Obviously, you and I are going to talk about COVID and the lockdowns and the insanity. But prior to COVID, it wasn't churning out a bunch of kids who couldn't read and write and do math and things like that, was it? 
No, you look at the nation's report cards, they've been flat for several decades, even though we've poured 152% more resources into the government school system per student after adjusting for inflation since 1970. Have outcomes gotten 152% better since 1970? Absolutely not. They've been flatter and in some cases worse. Things haven't gotten any better. It's just it, during COVID, it just became so obvious. I mean, it's one thing for the school system to fail your kids at each and every year academically, and then we keep throwing more money at the problem, expecting different results, the, the definition of insanity. Uh, but then the schools weren't even open for business, and they were still getting your $16,000 or so per student. And in fact, it was worse than that. They were able to keep their doors closed and say, we're failing because we don't have enough money. Give us you know, four or $5,000 more per student in the COVID relief. And they still kept their doors closed. In, in Chicago, two weeks to slow the spread turned into two years to flatten a generation of kids. They were striking in 2022. They were tweeting that it was racist and sexist to reopen the schools. They thankfully uh, deleted that tweet, but it was just nonstop um, hypocrisy and nonstop uh, just doing whatever they could, theatrics, to keep the schools closed and not go back to work. It became obvious to so many people that this is a bunch of BS. And in fact, the parents also got to see that the, their kids were being indoctrinated in ways that weren't aligned with their values. And so the problem became elevated over the past few years. It wasn't just failing in math and reading. It was, it was failing in math and reading. And now we're also seeing brainwashing happening in the schools and parents. That really mobilized them to say, Hell no, I'm, I'm going to change things. I'm going to push back at the school board meeting. I'm also going to push back at the ballot box, hold politicians accountable, and push for school choice. One of the crazier things I've seen the left pull, because as much as I despise communists, I admit they are better at politics than the right is. They just are. They worship it and we don't. It was insane to me that they would allow this woman, I've got a little clip of Randy Weingarten, to head the teachers' union. <laughs> Corey, this woman, I, I honestly, I want to wrap my arms around her and give her a hug. She's been the biggest gift to you. You have to love this woman. Exactly. I was just about to say we should give her a trophy for being the best, oh. although inadvertent, school choice advocate and homeschooling advocate over the past couple of years than anyone could have ever imagined. It has been joked that since we haven't been seen in the same room together, me and Randy Weingarten, that uh, she's actually... Uh, I'm actually, she's actually me in a, in a mask, and uh, she's 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 doing the work for us um, by just overplaying their hand. They they can't they can't stop because they've been so drunk on power for so long they don't know any better. So they keep stepping in it over and over again. I mean, just like a month ago, I, I woke up and I thought it was a Babylon Bee headline that she tweeted out, but it was actually a real tweet. She said, "I'm in Ukraine. I'm going to the front lines to assess the situation." What in the hell was Randy Weingarten doing in Ukraine? How did they pay for that? And what did she think she was going to do to help make the war go remote like she did with our schools? I mean, she closes all of her replies on Twitter, too, uh, just like she closed the schools because parents are fed up with the nonstop stream of gaslighting coming from the teachers unions trying to rewrite history. This woman fought to keep schools closed. Uh, but although the schools are open now, the problems haven't gone away. 
and parents never want to feel powerless like they did in 2020 ever again. So they're pushing back. There's a new union in town, uh, the kids union, and they're called parents and they're going to win the war that the unions waged on their kids uh, for decades now. One of the things, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you talk about choosing systems, right? Systems and things like that. I'll let you finish all that. But you've been out there at the state level making sure parents have choices. Uh, tell us, give us an update. Make me feel better, Corey. It's not hard to make me feel like crap about the education system. I personally think it's probably our worst institution. It's getting better, though, right? A little? Oh, absolutely. This is the one thing to be happy about over the past couple of years. The teacher unions overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant. And now in 2021, we called that the year of school choice because we had 19 states enact or expand programs to fund students as opposed to systems, allow the money to follow the child to a public, private, or charter school or home-based education option that works for your kids. And then in 2022, Arizona said, you know what, we're going to one-up all you guys and go all in. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed into law the biggest school choice victory in U.S. history. It is the gold standard of what we've been fighting for for decades to allow all the all the state funding to follow the child to the public, private charters, or home-based education uh, environment of their choosing. Every student is eligible, regardless of income, regardless of background. And West Virginia did the same thing. And now this year, we thought we, we were almost getting tired of winning because this year now we have Iowa went all in, Utah went all in. This week, we're expecting Arkansas perhaps to go all in as well. We saw Wyoming Senate pass a bill going all in. We saw South Carolina pass a new uh, school choice initiative uh, through their Senate. Uh, and we've seen committee votes uh, that are very, very favorable as well. Uh, Florida's House Education Committee, uh, Innovation and Choice and Education Committee passed a universal school choice bill, which means all students are eligible. Uh, Idaho, Tennessee, there's, uh, there's just a ton of red states engaging in friendly competition right now. I live in, in Texas. I grew up here. I moved back from D.C. I got out of the swamp, thankfully, uh, a couple of months ago. And Texas is going to look like it's finally going to go all in on school choice this year as well, with Governor Abbott le leading in on the issue, leading on the issue, calling explicitly for universal school choice. And he also made it uh, just last week an emergency item during his State of the State ish, uh, address. So it's just winning all over the place. And it, I could list more states, but it's just this, we're at a, a breaking point. This is an inflection point where once families get school choice, they're going to fight really hard to keep it. There's no stopping this school choice revolution. No matter how much Randy Weingarten cries about it, she can cry harder because we're going to continue to win on the issue. The dominoes are falling and there's nothing that the teachers union monopoly can do about it. It's absolutely glorious to see what's unfolding right now. Tori, on the front lines, putting in the real work out there. Thank you, my man. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. We're not near done. we got a whole lot of show for you. Hang on. Our news organization. Can you give us a chance to ask a question, sir? Go ahead. Sir, can Quiet. you state? Can you give us a question? Don't be. Rude. Can you no, give us a question? 
I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You can you stay categorical? You are fake news. Sir, go ahead. Sure. She's shocked that I picked her. No. She's like in a state of shock. I'm not thinking, Mr. That's President. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. When you report fake news, no. When you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Joining me now, Tim Graham and Nicholas Fondacaro, both of them with the wonderful Media Research Center. I love what you guys do, Newsbusters. All right, fellas. First, Tim, let's start with you. T Trump, did he simply expose that we have a hostile press or did he turn them hostile? And I don't mean that as being his fault. Did he cause these people to have some sort of a mental breakdown? Because it's very clear we don't have a bias problem. We have a hostile media. Well, I was in the White House press corps for a couple of years at the beginning of George W. Bush. Uh, they were hostile then, too. The difference between Bush and Trump was that Trump was uh, gave them their hostility right back at them. You know, most Republicans have tried really hard to treat the media as, well, you are the moderators of our discourse. And Trump was just not having that. And in part because when somebody like Jim Acosta is putting on a yelling show, he deserves to be put in his place. Nicholas, here's what I worry about. It's always been my concern. I'm not worried about you or Tim or me or, frankly, anybody watching this right now. But I am worried about the millions and millions and millions of Americans who aren't. The low infos. I'm not calling them dumb, just low info people. When ABC, CBS, NBC, I mean, you guys do this research all the time. When they are so one-sided, how, how much does it work on the person who just has 10 minutes at the end of the day to watch NBC Nightly News before he goes to sleep? Exactly. It's so much that the, the networks themselves, they take advantage of the fact that they know most of America is busy live, trying to live day to day and that they don't w want this negativity there. And they, they try to, that's why they want to control the narrative a lot is because they know that they only have like that 10 minute window even before the first break. So, cause a lot of people will probably just watch it just before that first commercial break. And they try to pack in all this negativity. And we saw this explosion in the Trump years of this political cycle news on the evening networks because it, they used to not do it as much. It used to just be this thing that would pop up occasionally, do a lot of human interest pieces. But there was this overwhelming sense of doom and gloom. The train is about to come off the rails under the Trump years that they needed to keep people in this sense of panic at all points in time. Uh, Tim, how do they see themselves? And I realize that's pretty all-encompassing. The media makes up a lot of different people. Everybody has different biases and, and different, different priorities in life. But they did come off so much during the Trump era as if they saw themselves as the vanguard protecting the nation. But are they really that? Do they really view themselves that way? Or are they just biased Democrats acting like they're doing this for our own good? Well, we used to have this debate a long time ago. Do they know they're biased? I think it's quite obvious, especially in the Trump era. They knew exactly what they were doing. And yes, they did have that sort of Brian Stelter boastiness about how we are the protectors of democracy. But, you know, in reality, they really don't want the conservatives or the Republicans to have much to say. They really kind of want to shout them down. So I think the, the first thing we've always insisted is that we too are democracy when we criticize the media that's democracy too they don't seem to think that that should belong yeah
Yeah, one thing that really, it's one of the many that really brought it home was the Hunter Biden stuff. Here's a little montage you may recognize. There's no evidence that Hunter Biden has done anything wrong. President Trump has falsely accused your son of doing something wrong while serving on a company board in Ukraine. I want to point out there's no evidence of wrongdoing by either one of you. We have looked. Lots of out outlets have looked. Hunter Biden did nothing wrong. Vice President Biden uh, did nothing wrong. And every single media outlet has said that there are no, there's no there there to these allegations, lies, and smears. Nicholas, the question is how damaging is things like that to the entire country? I'm not worried about the media's credibility. Screw the media. But I don't have the ability, I'm a normal citizen, I don't have the ability to go through Hunter Biden's laptop and figure out what's what. I can't be my own institutions. I need institutions that can bring me information I can't obtain on my own. If the American media is that, if they're just a cover, or if they're just running cover for the other side, how much does this hurt our country? Because that's really the point of the show tonight. It hurts our country tremendously, and we've seen it how they do this to affect the outcomes of, of elections. Like we here at uh, the Media Research Center, we did uh, we commissioned a poll, a study after the 2020 election, and we discovered that about 45 percent of of Biden voters had not heard of the Hunter Biden story and were unaware of it. And then we found out that about nine percent of them would have changed their voting patterns if they had learned about this. So that's either they would have voted for somebody else or they would have just not voted. And that it's a, it could be a small percentage, but in very close states, it's it could be the deciding factor of who gets electoral votes. Tim, one of the things I think people lose sight of when they talk about the media and bias and liberal, liberal and left-leaning or whatever word they want to put on it, they lose sight of the fact that the way the media conducts themselves actually kills people in this country it does how they conducted themselves well i mean here's the the aftermath of the george floyd death i want to be clear in how i characterize it this is a mostly a protest uh it is not uh it is not generally speaking unruly that ain't a riot what we're seeing right now in minneapolis i argue to you tonight all punches are not equal Morally, It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's, you know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. Any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. Thank goodness for the looters, man. And please, show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Tim... I remember them burning down Ferguson, Missouri. I remember them burning down many places across the country. Lives destroyed, lives lost. What they do has real consequences. Do you think any of these sociopaths ever consider that when they look in the mirror? I think that what we see here, you can just think of January 6th and you just see the dramatic difference. And that is that somehow, rioting was good then, rioting was terrible at the Capitol, and it was. But here, yes, people died in Portland. You know, people die in these riots. Um, and no, I don't think that they really consider themselves responsible for it. And they glamorize it by saying it's a racial reckoning. You know, we even had NPR support a book called In Defense of Looting. That's who we've got. Tim, Nicholas, thank you both. I appreciate you. You bet. Thank you. All right. The media is bad enough. I mean, again, you can't go find all your own information out there. You need people to bring you information. If you can't trust them, that's kind of a big deal. But 
Is it the most dangerous? I don't know. Part of me says it is, but then the other part of me remembers I'm going to need medical care at some point in my life. Probably a bunch of it at some point. You will need medical care at some point in your life. So what if the people providing you your medical care don't think you deserve good care because of the color of your skin? Sounds crazy. Sounds like something medieval, right? But it's coming here. We're going to talk about America's medical institutions next. Students of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Medical School Class of 2026 stand here today among our friends, families, peers, mentors, and communities. Today, many indigenous people throughout the state, including Dakota and Ojibwe, call the Twin Cities home. We also recognize this acknowledgement is not enough. We commit to uprooting the legacy and perpetuation of structural violence deeply embedded within the healthcare system. We recognize inequities built by past and present traumas rooted in white supremacy, colonialism, the gender binary, ableism, and all forms of oppression. As we enter this profession with opportunity for growth, we commit to promoting a culture of anti-racism, listening and amplifying voices for positive change. Well, that's pretty much the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. Got that surgery scheduled yet? Don't worry, one of those vicious little monsters will be the one performing it on you. Joining me now, Dr. Mark McDonald, child and adolescent psychiatrist. Doctor, I'll tell you what, when I see what's happening with the medical institutions in this country, it may be the most frightening thing to me because this is something I need. My wife needs, my kids need, people need medical knowledge. I'm too stupid, I, I don't know. So now I have to try to unpack when I walk in my doctor's office if I'm actually getting care because I'm too white. Is that what I have now? Is that the future my children have? It actually is, Jesse, and it's very disturbing. My stomach is clenching Jeez. as I watch that video. You don't have to go to university. You can go to job training, you can take a year off, you can do an internship. But if you're a patient, meaning if you're a human being and you will be a patient at some point in your life, we all get sick and we all die eventually, you will have to see a physician. Many people already know, we know just from watching the news, that the medical institutions, the providers of care, are completely corrupt. But many people don't know that the training institutions, like that clip you just played, they've also gone woke. So it's not just the existing medical institution and the existing physicians, it's the up and coming doctors, it's the medical students who are in training to become doctors, who are being treated the same way that students at university, that sports players, that those that are performing in uh, tournaments of academic achievement are being treated, which is that medicine, caring for the patient and doing the best for the patient is no longer their priority. The priority is the woke agenda of equity, diversity, and inclusion. And that is literally the beginning of the end for medical care in this country. Uh, doctor, I, I understand the mentality of these people because I know who they are and I know exactly what they are, but can you explain from a medical perspective how they got into medicine? You say they've been corrupted and they very clearly have 
man, maybe I was naive, but I'm 41. I'm not that old. I don't remember this from my childhood. I, I don't ever remember it being like this. Has it been like this for a long time? It's been like this for at least the last 10 to 15 years, but not to this degree. When I was in medical school in the late 2000s, you were already seeing this encroachment of pressure from political parties, specifically left-wing parties, that were trying to insert ideology into the interview process for the physician and the patient, into the treatment process, into the allocation of resources, but it was subtle. Now, when I speak to my friends, they're telling me that the incursion is so complete that they don't even have the courage or the opportunity to speak up when they're being told to teach in a way that they don't believe is appropriate. These are professors of medicine now, you know, my colleagues. As an example, I received an email, this was probably a year and a half to two years ago, from the current dean of education at my medical college, praising the BLM movement Specifically, in those words, this is during the riots. This is when all of our cities were being burned down. I wrote back to him personally, and I said, I am appalled and disgusted that you would support such a destructive, anti-American and hateful movement. And he wrote back and he said, this is his own words. I still remember this. He said, there is no shame in supporting equity. This is from the dean of education of my medical school. If this the presence of the people on the top. And these are people who are leading the way in determining and designing the education of the medical students today. I don't know what hope there is. Okay, so uh, you're the doctor, I'm not. Play this out for me because, well, I think about this from the CDC and this will help me with my question here. We're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real world data. Okay, so that's the current head of the CDC lying outright. She never had those trials. She never had that data. She lied about all of that. My point in this is between the stories you just shared and things like this, the American people are losing trust rapidly, and maybe they should, in their medical institution. What I can't figure out, or I have it played out in my head, is what that means for a nation. What happens in a nation when they don't have doctors they can trust anymore? I don't even know historically how to, how to find something like that. What ends up happening is we're facing a, a basically a bimodal opportunity here. We are facing the collapse of which means potentially we won't have real medical care in the future. That's option one. Option two is we're facing the collapse of the medical institutions as we know it, and we will be building parallel medical systems to supplant them in the same way that homeschooling is now supplanting government schooling. It's gone up by two, 300% in the last 18 to 24 months because parents recognize through all of the Zoom recording leaks that we no longer have a school system. We have a system of indoctrination in K through 12, as well as the universities, obviously. This is what people are now realizing with medicine. And it's pushing for a, for a new, I would say a revival, almost like a religious revival, but a medical revival of alternative medical training. And I don't mean uh, frou-fou uh, yoga crystals medical training. I mean truly an alternative <laughs> to the corruption 
that real corruption that's in our medical institutions now, and I know colleagues who have pulled out completely from the system and are forming their own cash pay, non-insurance based, non-government funded or sponsored, i.e. pressured, paths of treating patients. And so I do see some positivity here. I mean, it is very dark. I, I'm completely on the same page as you are. It's disgusting, it's horrific, but it may be an opportunity to be ground up because it cannot be reformed. You cannot reform a system where the head of the snake is this evil and this indoctrinated and this corrupt. Because as you can see from the videos you played, the people at the bottom that are coming up are simply following in that path. There's no way to change the mindset of a medical student right now who has been literally indoctrinated like a cult follower into practicing diversity, equity, inclusion instead of medicine. There's nothing you can do for those people. Man, alive, that's scary. So finally, to, to sum it up, that's that actually, that's part of my concern. They're pulling out, they're stepping away from the from from everything. So this sounds to me like only wealthier people are going to have access to high quality care in the future and poor people simply are not because they don't have the cash to stroke a check for the the at-home mammogram well it's an interesting point you're making because the reason why medical care is so rich off of treating patients for cash the reason is that 60 to 80 percent of all the dollars in medicine that are being spent are going to two places they're going to pharmaceutical corporations that's mostly where medicine dollars go right now is to drugs. And two, they're going to administrative overhead for insurance carriers, and that could be government and private. Just like in the public school system, how many administrators are there for every teacher? It went up from like two to five to 10 to 50. I'm in Los Angeles, something like 60 to 80% of the employees in the LAS2 school system, they're administrators, they're not teachers. The same thing has happened upward it might serve as a, a kind of like a, a new tesla coming out only the rich can afford the expensive hundred thousand dollar car but i do believe that soon it will trickle down because of efficiencies and so the first buyers of you know the iphone 20 years ago they spent thousands of dollars for an iphone now soon because of the increase in efficiency and the cutting of bloat we will have a very fair and equitable system where yes it will be cash pay but it'll be far less expensive than what we're paying now I'm spending $10,000, $15,000 a year on my own health insurance, i.e. subsidized, communist-style medical care. I don't use it, and if I end up going to the doctor, I have to pay cash anyway because my deductible is so high. All that money I'm paying isn't going to my doctor. It's going to an insurance carrier who's then redistributing it to other people in the administration. So I think in the long run, this is a good thing. In the short run, it might be tough. But in the long run, I think it'll make medicine cheaper, more accessible, more affordable, and most important, ethical. I like that. Doctor, I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. We'll be back. Uh, so which institution is the worst? Those are all bad. Right? Education, medical, look, it's all bad. But which one is the worst? It's actually the government employees. This is the one that's hard to talk about because it's very hard to change. But the truth is this. The administrative state 
that actually runs this country. They're all activist Democrats now. Well north of 90% of the federal Leviathan, the biggest employer in the United States of America by a mile. They're all activist Democrats. Now think about that. Think about what that means for your life. Department of Justice, FBI, IRS, EPA. Think about this mass of humanity and they have the power to destroy us, to attack us. What if that IRS agent has, still has the Hillary sticker on the back of her car when she decides whether or not you get rung up for an audit? Think she might look at your Facebook page first? Or that FBI agent? The truth is, with all the institutions that they've taken over, the tr the hard truth is now that they have every part of the federal government, it's just going to be very, very difficult to fight back against that. Unless we start to form a serious coalition of red states, anti-communist red states to stand up to it, there is no standing up to that. As bad as the medical institutions are, and the teachers and whatnot, it's the FBI agent who hates your guts for being pro-Second Amendment that has the true power to save your life. It is the government that's the problem. All right, we'll do it again. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.